This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. My name is Dane Chamorro. I'm a partner in our Asia-Pacific business based in Singapore. Today, we are going to be looking at the recent general election in Singapore in which the Opposition Workers' Party took a record number of seats and what that may mean for multinationals, specifically regarding the employment of foreign talent, which had become an election issue given that the election was held in the midst of the worst ever economic contraction in the country's history. By comparison, Singapore's neighbor to the north, Malaysia, has had a series of electoral upsets over the last couple of years that have resulted in a fairly unstable ruling coalition accompanied by continued infighting both within the government and the opposition. As a likely beneficiary of restructuring global supply chains, how wary should investors be of potential changes in the operating environment in Malaysia? To help us understand the issues, I'm joined by Harrison Chang, Associate Director in our Southeast Asian Political Analysis Team who covers both countries. Harrison, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining. We're going to cover a couple of countries today, but we're going to start with Singapore. So Singapore, a couple of weeks ago, had a general election. The ruling party, the PAP, won again. That wasn't really a surprise. The opposition did better than they've ever done, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in terms of the number of seats that they won. And the cabinet was tweaked a little bit in terms of some of the ministers. And that was really in the process or during the worst economic contraction in independent Singapore's history. It's not unique in that situation, but it is unique to have a, a general election during that, during that situation. So talk to us a little bit about what that means going forward. Is the opposition going to be a real opposition? I mean, is, is there really teeth to that, so to speak, given that they only have 10 seats? And just an outline of what you think the political landscape is going to look like to the next election. The opposition did win 10 seats, which has been the most number of seats they have won ever. And the 10 seats were won by the Workers' Party, the most established opposition party in Singapore. I mean, it's important to understand the reason they did that. It wasn't just because of protest vote against the ruling party, the, the People's Action Party. But it was also because the WP, for short, uh, they put up really credible candidates this time around, which struck a chord with voters who were looking at candidates who could offer diverse opinions in parliament. This resulted in, you know, the WP doing very well. They won two group representation constituencies, or GRCs for short. No opposition party has ever won two before, and the Workers' Party has just done that. Importantly, I think, for the future of, of, of Singapore's political development and trajectory in the next five years, as you, as you say, we think that the opposition is going to put up a more resilient front in terms of leading as well as engaging in parliamentary debates. And this will result in more robust policy discussions in parliament. This may lengthen the period of policy deliberations, but it will also hopefully result in more well-rounded policies that can take into account some of the deficiencies that people have seen in some of the policies that the PAP has put up. The leader of the opposition, which is a new role that's been created and formalized in Singapore's uh, system, has been given to the WP chief, Pritam Singh. And we think that this is not just a symbolic gesture, but Pritam will also be given several resources. He will also be given additional staff, additional parliamentary time. And so all these things will help the WP hopefully to establish themselves. It's as much an opportunity for them as a test for them. Because if they do not 
prove that they can take hold of this opportunity, the voters will probably correct back to the PAP in five years' time. Sometimes that's that's the challenge when you when you want to power. How do you actually exercise it or influence power once you're in a formal position of opposition? You mentioned looking forward, what policies might look like, how they might change. Obviously, one of the ones in Singapore that's of significant interest to business is immigration, and that got a lot of attention in this election, also in the 2011 election, but certainly this time. And we've also heard it from our clients that you know that's one of the concerns is. Will they be able to get work passes for key employees and things like that? So maybe you could expand a little bit on what you think is going to happen there or any other business policies that you might think would affect the overall environment for, for foreign businesses in Singapore. In the past few weeks since the election concluded, we have seen a slew of policy measures and announcements by key ministers and members of the ruling party that point towards tightening of some of these foreign work passes and increased scrutiny of employment and dismissal practices that companies are taking in the current COVID situation. So the National Trades Union Congress, which is the main trade body that deals with relations between employers and employees, they came up with a new framework called the Fair Retrenchment Framework that seeks to ensure that employers only use retrenchment and dismissal as a last resort And they need to make sure that the terms of dismissal, the the compensation packages and all those are actually fair to the workers who are being let go. And I think they deliver a strong statement of intent because in late July, they actually intervened in a specific trenchment exercise regarding a company that was a joint venture between a local company and a US aviation company. And what they did was NTUC intervened with affected unions. They managed to negotiate down the proportion of workers who were let go to reduce the number of locals that were let go from 55% to about 40-something percent. Prior to that move, the NTUC had actually authorized the unions to take legal industrial action. And if that actually went through, it would have constituted the first legal strike in Singapore in decades. But it didn't go through because the company agreed to renegotiate. The government is taking a very proactive stance on this particular issue right now to be seen to be protecting local jobs. It doesn't mean that the PAP will shift overnight into a, you know, a radically nationalist and anti-foreign kind of view. And, and the PAP will continue to be the most pro-business ruling party slash coalition in Southeast Asia, Vana. But we do see a gradual shift towards wanting to protect local jobs to reassure the public because the PAP understands that the general election result showed that people are not entirely happy with how they've handled immigration policy. The government has also retained the manpower minister, Josephine Thiel, who has been well known for really trying to enforce fair hiring practices that do not discriminate against locals. And this is likely to persist. We're likely to see enforcement on that front continue to be quite strong. So you mentioned manpower minister, Ms. Thiel, keeping her seat. Are there any other personalities in the slightly revised cabinet? that we now have that you think are worth noting from a policy perspective of the business community? I think there are just two that I will mention. One is obviously Deputy Prime Minister Heng Sui Kiet. He not only retained his position, even though he didn't do that well in the election, he also became coordinating minister for economic policies. And that means he's the go-to guy for economic policy, the point man in the government. And Heng being a technocrat uh, means he's going to focus very much on resuscitating and ensuring economic recovery in the coming years. And that's probably a good thing for, for businesses. He has also been at the forefront of pushing for the job support scheme, 
which you know affords wage support for local employees for businesses, which has been a huge help compared to some of the other governments in the region, which have been far more cash strapped and less willing to come forward with that support for businesses. The other personality I would mention is the new transport minister, Ong Yi Kung. So Ong did a very successful stint as an education minister in his previous role. And now he's been shifted to the transport minister position. And why he's important to watch is because he will be the person leading the government plans and efforts to revive the tourism economy, revive business travel. And that's key to a lot of our clients' concerns right now. When can they travel? When can they move their personnel around? And based on his credentials, based on his past experience, I think he's definitely the right man for the job. And that should actually encourage the investors who are looking at Singapore in the latest transition. Arguably, Singapore's most important geographic connection is Malaysia. Travel between the two or interaction between the two has been severely limited since the COVID outbreak. One of the things that has gone ahead is the rapid transit link to Johor Bahru just across the strait. One of the things that has been talked about for quite a while, but let's say more in limbo, is the high-speed rail link to Kuala Lumpur, which was on and then off again, and then kind of, you know, still with big question marks around it. So talk to us a little bit about that physical connectivity, but particularly the, the HSR project between Singapore and Malaysia. The RTS is a very different proposition from the HSR. The amount of political support that the HSR has gotten in Malaysia is not exactly on the same level, not as high as the RTS. For the RTS, we've known for a long time that the Singapore government and the Johor government have long seen eye to eye on the need for more efficient transportation, given the usual traffic congestion that we see on the causeway between the two countries and the fact that so many people travel back and forth every day for work. There has long been the, the need for a solution and the RTS presents us with that solution. So it's a good thing that the RTS is going forward and we need to understand why that's because, you know, it's quite clear on Malaysia and Singapore both agree. And within Malaysia, between the ruling party and the opposition, they both agree on the need for the RTS. So that has really ensured that the project goes forward. HSR is a different matter. Why I say that is because under the previous government, the Pakatan Harapan government in Malaysia, led by Prime Minister at that time, Mahathir Mohamad, he essentially decided to postpone the HSR. And he said many times publicly that it was not really a viable proposition. They didn't really see the need for the HSR whereas Singapore has been pushing for it quite consistently and they will continue to push for it even after the latest cabinet reshuffle. And the thing is that there's always that chance that Mahathir might come back to power. There's always that chance that Pakatan and Anwar, Anwar Ibrahim, the leader of that coalition, will come back to power. The current government in Malaysia you know, is quite unstable. The Prime Minister, Mohidin Yassin, has a very slim parliamentary majority of just two seats, which means that all it takes is for a few members of parliament to defect to Mahathir's side for the government to fall. And there could be snap general elections by the end of this year, for all we know. And even as we speak, Mahathir is, is not done. Even though he's 95 years old, he's not done plotting. He's not done trying to claw his way back into government. There are rumors that he's going to start a new party on his own to sort of start afresh and launch a new challenge against the government. And so the political situation in Malaysia is so much in flux that the chance that Mahathir might come back to power will always be there. And that also means that the HSR could be held hostage by these political developments. I think Singapore is well aware of that, which is why they put in, you know, hefty financial compensation clauses to hold Malaysia to account. And the hope is that this clause will be enough to force Malaysia, regardless of whichever administration is in power, to stick to the deal. That is really what Singapore hopes will, will be done. 
So you, you walked me neatly into my final question, which was going to be about the political situation in Malaysia, which you've, you've outlined well from a business perspective. It is one of those places that we see our clients attracted to because of the decent infrastructure, the skilled workforce, the common law legal system, all those things. So they have a, a round of Shakespearean politics going on at the very top. But I guess from a business perspective, my question would be, does it matter if I'm you know, making uh, electronics in Penang? That, does it matter what, what goes on at the upper levels of the party infighting in Kuala Lumpur? Should I pay attention to that or not as a business person? To a certain extent, there are certain continuities and fundamentals of Malaysia's investment environment, which you pointed out, the infrastructure, the skilled labor, the fact that, you know, places like Penang and Selangor and Johor are, you know, strong and well-established manufacturing bases where the authorities know very well what works for business and what doesn't, and therefore things run very smoothly on that on that count. And that, that is why Malaysia will continue to be a favorable investment destination for manufacturers, especially as a part of a global supply chain. And Malaysia will continue to position itself as an alternative location for companies that have been seeking to avoid US tariffs on Chinese goods. So many companies have been moving from China to Southeast Asia to do that. And although Vietnam is a clear favorite, Malaysia is not far behind. Thailand is not far behind. And so Malaysia will continue to, to play that strong role in global supply chains. Where politics affects business, it does so in a, in a couple of ways. As we can see from the high-speed rail, which we talked about just, just a while back, political changes can affect the appetite of the government to support certain investment projects that involve foreign players. The thing about the Mahathir administration of 2018 to 2020, early 2020, is that they showed a particularly active appetite for intervening in contracts that have been signed under the previous government. And that is where we really think political risk comes in because it does present contract risks when the incoming administration wants to discredit the previous administration and therefore starts to poke holes and find trouble with deals that were signed and involving you know, even the, the largest most prominent foreign companies, multinationals, even involving investors from a place like China, where, you know, Malaysia-China relations have been so smooth, nobody would have expected Malaysia to turn on Chinese contracts. But Mahathir did it in grand fashion, and he showed the Chinese in a sense that, you know, he was not afraid to touch these things if it meant that he could benefit politically as well as economically from it, because he wanted to reduce cost to reduce financial debt that was left behind by Najib. So that is one way. The other way is the willingness of the government to address things like transparency and rule of law. That is an important factor that, that weighs on investors' minds because when they go into a country to invest, they want to be sure that if it ever comes to a dispute with their local partner, they can rely on the courts. They can rely on you know transparent investigations and ways for remediation that don't really have any risk of political interference. Unfortunately, in Malaysia, it's turning out to be the opposite direction with this government. The Najib trial, the, the conviction of, of former Prime Minister Najib Razak just a few weeks back does not in any way indicate that rule of law is necessarily improving in Malaysia or that anti-corruption enforcement will be better. And this affects businesses in a very real way because they deal with compliance every day. They have to worry about the risks, not just of local enforcement, but also enforcement of extraterritorial laws like the FCPA. Political changes at the top, they might seem very remote, they might seem very far from where you are in, in Selangor or Johor, but they eventually will affect your business and in very real operational ways. So this is just something that I think the business community needs to think about. 
Thank you for that whirlwind tour of two countries, Paris, and that was really fantastic. And we hope to have you back to talk about Thailand next. Looking forward to it, Dane. Thanks so much for inviting me today. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.